about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly, and their dog Ninja. Hey, this is Chelsea and Julian in California, and you're listening to Hillbilly Horror Stories. Hillbilly Horror Stories, yeehaw! Well, I know I disappeared a time or two. I needed a new town for my new start Selling VCRs in Arkansas at a Walmart I think I'm on a roll here in Little Rock I'm solid as a stone, baby, wait and see Welcome everybody to episode 46 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. Hola, come star. It's me, Tracy. And that was uh, Chelsea and her cute little son, Julian, uh, with the intro, although I'm pretty sure he said horror stories. Hey, it was the cutest thing ever. Thank you so much for doing that. We loved it. I'm okay. Horror, horror stories. It's all the same to me. I get as much enjoyment out of both. You are nasty, my friend. Anyways, um, I also chose that because... Chelsea turned me on to a uh, podcast called Pleasing Terrors, and uh, I fell in love with it, and I think you guys will too. And I immediately contacted the host and uh, writer of the show, Mike Brown, and uh, asked him to come on and do an interview, and we're going to feature that a little later in the show. Yeah, that that podcast is really good. You all need to take a listen to it because it's really pretty interesting. Let's start out with uh, some shout-outs. Obviously, uh, first and foremost, shout-out to all the military uh, people around the world, uh, and any of you civil servants, uh, policemen, fire department, EMS, thank you to all you guys for keeping us warm and safe. God bless you every day. We want to talk about our new iTunes reviews because we've had several of them. So, big shout out to Victor Longoria in San Antonio, uh, Fat Tony, and I promise I'm not uh, body shaming or anything. That's the name that he put on there. So, I'm just, not just calling him names, it's Fat Tony. KNKC4321, Miguel um, Magdaleno. 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 I said that wrong again. Uh, the Until Dawn podcast. And this is actually another podcast. It's a, um, a husband and wife team. Uh, it's a pretty cool podcast. You get a chance. They're both paranormal investigators. So I know that, um, at one point in time a while back, the, she was actually going up to the Ohio State Reformatory to uh, spend some time. So some, they got some pretty good insight. Uh, nerd. A W A P P. Actually, I think that's a need a WAP. Oh, dang, dude. Can't you even reach your own no, writing? No, I cannot. Jamie and Gabby and Darren KC71. Thank you all for the reviews. We love, really appreciate it. Keep them coming. Absolutely. And um, Patreon supporters this week we had Jennifer Cunningham, Karen Wickiam, Adrian Drinka. 
and Dylan McNamara. Thank you guys so much for becoming uh, sponsors. And, of course, uh, w- one of the things we've been working on are the bonus episodes for Patreon. And we are almost completely through with our second listener stories episode. We've had some awesome uh, stories so far. We've had Carolyn Ogle come on and tell a story. We've had uh, DJ Prowler, which is actually Tessa. Uh, she owns a paranormal company, but she also has a radio show. She came on and told a story. And then we've had Celeste. That's an awesome story you guys are going to want to hear about uh, her marriage. And then we've got a couple others that we've done. So, yeah, we've, we're working on this already behind the scenes. That's going to come out on the 1st. So if you're just not hearing this, now's the time to jump into Patreon. Uh, $3 gets you that story. $5 gets you that story and, a, and another bonus episode that's really similar to the one that we do on a, mm-hmm. a regular weekly basis. So, yeah, they were all really good stories. Yep. Jump in there and uh, sometime this week and become a Patreon supporter and get you some extra episodes. And as always, if for some reason you can't afford to do that, you know, you've still got all this free content we're putting out. You know, it's not anything uh, that we're going to look down on anybody or, or say, well, why, why hasn't everybody jumped on the Patreon? We realize that not everybody can afford to do that, and we love everybody just the same. Yeah, we do. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what our story is. Uh, We've had a bunch of requests for this. I've kind of waited for the right time to do it. And I kind of, the more I researched it, the more I kind of thought we probably should have done it a little bit sooner because it's a little more fascinating than what I initially thought it was going to be. And that is the story behind the movie The Legend of Bogey Creek. Is Uh, it Bogey? It's Bogey. Oh, I always thought it was Boggy. No. no, Humphrey Bogart did not live there, so Bobby, that would be more boggy. Bobby. But the legend of Bogey Creek is—it uh, was a, a very cheaply made movie that we'll get into more of that later. But it was made in the early seventies, right around seventy-two, I, th- I believe it was. But this movie pretty much put a Bigfoot-type character into into international status. There were talk of Bigfoot before, but it wasn't the fascination like you see today. That pretty much all started back with this movie. Mm-hmm. Now, this movie was, was also known back in the day as the Falk Monster, because all this happened in Falk, Arkansas. Thus, the reason we started off with a song talking about Arkansas. That was the reason for that. So, the name of, obviously, the Falk Monster, it's from a little town in Arkansas that literally had about 500 people in that the whole town. little, yeah. Yeah. So what happened was a couple of different things, but you know you, you had the legend just kind of started as a uh, I guess a local or regional thing because there was an incident that we'll cover in just a little bit. This incident was reported to the newspapers, and then there were some other things happening around the newspapers. So the, all these things kept getting reported, reported. So the whole area down there in this area, and this is basically if you're unfamiliar with the area itself. This part of Arkansas is right there by Texarkana, where Texas is, mm-hmm. Arkansas, and Louisiana. All that's right there kind of oh. together. So it's almost mm-hmm. where, where the three states meet. So what happened was the newspapers made this thing regional, and then when the movie came out, like I said, it became international. Everybody knew the Falk monster back then. So like I said, we had the Falk itself, 500 people back in the day. Now, Boggy Creek, Bogey Creek, now you got me saying it. Sorry, babe. Bogey Creek <laughs> actually feeds into the Sulphur River. Now, the Sulphur River Wildlife Management Area is about 18,000 acres. So it's pretty big. Yeah. And it's actually one of the largest bottomland hardwood habitat areas actually remaining along the, the Red River Valley there. So 
Why is that important? Because obviously it would be a good place to hide a creature that, Mm -hmm. you know, people have trouble finding. So I told you that this all started because of an incident. And I'm going to tell you about the incident now. It happened in 1971. A guy named Bobby Ford, he was visiting his little brother, Donnie Ford. And earlier in the day, Don's wife, Elizabeth, she was looking, she was standing like in a living room and she notices a big hairy arm actually reaching through the window. No. So they got the window open and it's kind of reaching through. I guess about that time, uh, Bobby and his brother Don come home from, from a hunting trip. And I guess they spooked it and it ran off. Well, it came back a little bit later that night, and you could see, uh, hear the noises and stuff like that, and they could see something moving from outside. And earlier, because of this, seeing the hand come through the day, they had borrowed a shotgun from their landlord. And, you know, after you started seeing this thing, they they look out, and they're, and they're like, they got their shotgun, they want to try to take some shots at it. They said this thing was seven foot tall, covered with hair, and walked upright like a man. But it was a little bit different. Like the strides it would take was a little different than what a man would. It was almost ape-like. Well, I mean, did the, the two brothers had to be pretty far away. I mean, how the heck you cannot see a seven-foot hairy monster? And, I mean, you know, if it's... He, they, I mean, if it heard them coming, right? Right. Well, they saw it. They saw it. That's, why, that's how they knew it ran off. That's how they know they spooked so it So they off. were that close then? Yeah, they were close enough. I wonder what he was reaching for. Maybe an apple. In a basket. Maybe it was beef jerky. <laughs> <laughs> so what ended up happening is, at this point in time, they've already got the shotgun. So mm-hmm. when it comes back, they come out and they take a shot at it. And Bobby actually kind of went walking around the side of the house. And when he did, he said, there it was. Mm-hmm. So he turned around and ran, tried to run up the porch to get back in the house. And about the time he got to the porch, this thing, according to him grabs him and pretty much just kind of wrestles with him a little bit and then tosses him down like a rag doll. Oh, gosh. And he practically knocked the door down trying to get back in. There was damage done to the mm-hmm. door. They took him to the uh, the hospital, and uh, it was actually at the uh, Texarkana Hospital. They took him to the emergency room, and all this is documented. He was actually treated for some you know minor injuries and stuff like that, but he was also treated for being in shock. In shock? Yeah, they said there was no doubt about it that he was definitely in shock so whatever happened was enough to just completely freak him out to where he didn't even have his wits about him at the moment wow i mean i can see that and then the fords actually moved out a couple days later i mean they they didn't waste any time so Mm -hmm. what made this incident so much different than other bigfoot encounters was you know up to this point people content uh, would, would consider a bigfoot type creature to be docile it was you know, something that never wanted any kind of instigation. It was never any kind of uh, uh, altercations. It just was run off. This was the first known supposed attack by one of these creatures. Well, I'm gonna, I was going to say, I mean, I'm pretty sure that he could have killed him right then and there if he wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I, I would think so. I would think that. Well, you don't be messing with Sasquatch when you're trying to get a piece of fruit. Yeah, something seven foot tall. That's and, and probably 300 pounds, like they described mm-hmm. it, would have been, and, and an animal like that would probably be majority muscle. Oh, God, I yeah. would imagine, just like an ape, it would have kind of done whatever it wanted to do. Yeah. To him, so. Ooh, I, that's scary. Hmm. So he's at the hospital. You know, after he's at the hospital, the doctor actually called the newspapers and said, hey, there's something going on at Falk. You may want to go investigate this. 
The next day, the reporters go down there and they see some strange tracks. And, you know, they, they kind of three-toed tracks. That was what's different about them. They had three toes and a slight indention that looked like it might have had a fourth toe, but it just wouldn't hmm. touch it enough. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And it, it, it's funny because, like I said, like today's papers, it would probably be a little different. But here it actually said, Falk family attacked by hairy monster. That's what the, that's what it actually said in the newspaper. Yeah. So you could imagine something like this is, is causing a frenzy. I mean, now you got people coming by to want to see what the house looks like, yeah. and you know, so they, you know, nobody could get any peace in there. But it was starting to cause yeah. problems while they Bunch were still there. Tourists probably which, coming and which, all that. You know, crap. which is why they wanted to, to hurry up and get out of there. Yeah. Now three weeks later, it was seen again, and that's when it got the name the Falk Monster. Um. The difference this time was it was instead of the Fords, the Fords had just lived there for a short time. Mm-hmm. But this was actually a well-respected couple, uh, a man and woman, uh, Mr. and Miss Woods. They were traveling north on 71. They saw a hairy creature run across the road. And like I said, this was something that they could look at and say, these people have lived here forever. And they seen that we're going to give it a little more credibility than what the Fords. Now on June 3rd, some other people reported seeing it cross the road. They don't have their names, but mm-hmm. so now that now you're starting to see, you know, a pattern because the, the you know the Ford situation happened in May. Now we're at June third, and we've already had three sightings now. Okay, are you sure though they really saw it, or they just might have just been saying it? Well, you could probably say that maybe about the third uh, sighting, but the second sighting was a church going, you know, older couple. So mm-hmm. the chances of them doing it would have been a little less. I mean, sure, they could be, but yeah. June thirteenth, a bean farmer uh, came out to his freshly plowed field. Mm-hmm. So it'd be pretty easy to see something. He saw strange footprints coming from one side of the woods all the way across his bean field, and then back into the woods again. Now, once again, they actually came out this time and they did some plaster of Paris and actually took um, some prints of this thing. They were 13, 13 inches wide, or 13 inches long, 4 inches wide. It had the three toes and a possible fourth toe, uh, but it was kind of very vague at that level fourth. But that's the exact same tracks what, that they yeah, saw they at the Fords. Now, newspapers, once again, they're right back at this, you know, writing about it. So now it's starting to cause a ruckus. So the newspapers, they started kind of questioning a lot of people in the town, and they even went a little bit further down to uh, uh, Jonesville, which is about five miles southwest of, uh, of Falk. Now, this was really a small community. There was only 40 or 50 people that lived there. I mean, they, they, these places, it was dirt roads. It, these roads didn't even get paved until like the 90s. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine what it was like back then. Very rural. I mean, all the houses were back in the woods, so it was kind of scattered around. The trees and stuff were growing up all over so it was a really a spooky type situation. But what we found was that there were a lot of uh, uh, stories going on there where they're like, you know, you guys are acting like you were just seeing these things. We've been seeing this thing for over 60 years. So th- this was nothing new to them in, in Jonesville. Mm-hmm. And they started talking about, you know, some of the stories were out there. In 1946, Leslie Green, the, uh, the sheriff, said a woman told him that, he she saw a very hairy man running through the woods and it was you know she could see it from her porch 
But he didn't think anything of it. I mean, this was back in 46. He just thought that maybe there was just somebody running through the woods. Or, you know, maybe she just didn't 100% know what she was talking about. And just nighttime, things look a little different. Of course. So he didn't think anything of it. After all these sightings started coming out, now keep in mind, that, that was, you know, 1946. Uh, uh, these sightings come out, were like in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And... 71 so this has been you know quite a long oh, yeah, time yeah. afterwards and he's like after after the sightings he was thinking you know well maybe there was something to what she was saying back then in 1955 willie smith said he saw it several times uh at his house and he even shot at it a bunch of times he was the first person to actually theorize that it traveled kind of along the creeks and the yeah uh, the rivers right there so that's and that's kind of what a lot of people think about big big foots or big it's big foots big feet I don't think it's big feet, babe. (laughs) I think it's just big foot, one foot. Okay. So, but people tend to think that that all these big foot type characters or creatures, Mm -hmm. uh, they kind of go along the river line and just kind of follow that line. In 1964, this girl named uh, Mary Beth Searcy, she said she saw a seven foot tall, hairy man type, I guess, man type creature from her window. She, She was on the news. And, you know, they had talked to her about it back when this first happened. And obviously, you know, she was upset. But they said you could tell when you if you see footage of this interview, you could tell just by the look in her eye that she was terrified, Mm -hmm. that there's no way she was lying about at least thinking she saw something. In 1965, uh, a woman hunter, she had uh, went through. Well, I guess I should explain this first. These woods are so dense mm-hmm. that you can't even really walk through them in some places. Oh, wow. So in order to put pipelines or, or run electrical wires or something like that, they usually have to cut a path mm-hmm. uh, through these woods. Now, what would happen if, if, if you're a hunter, you know that because they've got this path for these, a lot of times the animals will come there because it's easier to move. Yeah. So you can just kind of perch up there hunting and just wait for them to come through that path. Well, she was actually doing that. She was going through one of the pipelines, and she was in a tree stand just waiting for some animals. And she says she saw this man running towards her. And she's like, why is this man out here running in the woods at full speed? And then as he got closer, she realized that he was about seven foot, covered with hair, three to four inches thick. And she said that he never, he just ran right past her, never saw her. He didn't have a clue that she was up in a tree stand. Lucky her. Yeah. In 1965, Lynn Crabtree, who was only 14 years old at the time, was he was out squirrel hunting, and uh, late one evening, he just kind of started to doze off. You know, as he's out there, he's just kind of perched, just kind of waiting on squirrels. He starts dozing off, and he heard, you know, some noise and stuff like something coming up the, the path, and it was the neighbors had all these horses, and these horses were running straight towards him and they had a pond or a pond or a lake mm-hmm. on their property these horses they all ran straight into this lake oh my gosh now he said that he got up to see what was going on and he happened to turn and there was this giant creature dark fur flat nose dark face just standing about 30 yards from him he fired three shots from his shotgun at him and then just took off running he ran into the house and they had company at the house his parents did and he went in and explained to him what had happened and he was in a panic and his dad smoky crabtree he went out to investigate but he didn't see anything Mm -hmm. now we go back why is all these people such terrible shots 
Well, I don't know. Well, he was probably just scared. Oh. Or some people claim that they're actually hitting him with the shots. Oh, well, he's it's just, just not up. doing anything. Yeah. Here's another one, and this was kind of a, you know, all these things happen in Jonesville, and it, but like it is, it's forty, fifty people, so people are skeptical to believe what's mm-hmm. being said because everybody's neighbors, everybody knows each other. They could just be, you know, kind of like the Salem witch trials thing. Mm-hmm. It just could be, hey, this is happening, so let's everybody else say we're seeing it too. Mm-hmm. You know, not not that it's set up like that, but if one person sees it, maybe the other person, well, I think I've seen it too. Right, you know, right. could just be a mental thing. This kind of changed that thought process because in, in in 1967, I keep in mind this happened in 67, but it didn't come out in 67. But there's a guy by the name of Carl Finch. He is a um, uh, lead singer for the band Brave Combo. Now, back in 67, they were a pretty big band, and they were. Uh, uh, a Grammy award-winning band. Oh, so wow. this guy's got some credibility. He was doing a battle of the bands in Shreveport, Louisiana. He was driving back around 3 a.m. It was uh, him and his uh, cousin. They were on Highway 71. It's very dark road. Uh, headlights all of a sudden kind of, you know, come upon somebody running on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's summertime. And it, they're thinking, this looks like a guy jogging on this completely dark road. Never would I ever. <laughs> and... What, jog? I'm aware. Oh, yeah, that's true. But I would never be on a dark road by myself at night, yeah, ever. Yeah, I can guarantee you, if somebody calls me and said Tracy was found on the side of the road dead, I'll guarantee you we're not having jogging shoes on. Oh. But anyways, so this guy. You hate me. This big, <laughs> this Bigfoot <laughs> thing is, it's jogging, and they're thinking he's got a fur coat on. They're like, why is this guy jogging? Why is he wearing a fur coat in the middle of the summertime? Okay, well, that thought was stupid, whoever thought that. That was dumb. Well, they're not thinking there's going to be a Bigfoot running on the side of the road. Well, I'll... It looks like a man. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's not like that That uh, Mad TV. It looked like a man. It looked like a man. So, the, his cousin was actually the one driving. And he wanted to get a better look at it. But as they got close, she kind of veered over into the other lane to make sure she wasn't anywhere close to it and passed it up. And then as the taillights kind of faded, he kind of lost sight of it and couldn't tell what it was. Mm-hmm. But... It was years later when he even heard about this thing and said, hey, and it was after the movie came out. He saw the movie in like 75 or 76. So we're like, we're talking like eight or 10 years later. And he's like, man, I think I think we saw that thing that night. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's like the people were like, well, he's not even from the area. He didn't know anything about it. Yeah. But, but where he saw it was right there by Jonesville. Oh, so we had actually had a credible witness that wasn't from the area that knew nothing about it that saw the same thing that everybody in Jonesville was seeing. Just think, he could have got his autograph. Bigfoot could have got his autograph? No, he could have got Bigfoot's autograph. I was trying to say, because he is a Grammy Award winning artist. <laughs> Bigfoot might have wanted his autograph. <laughs> Ninja, I'm not going to have this. Cease. Sorry about that, you fine folks. All right. So let's talk about the movie itself. All this stuff's happening in the newspaper, and there was a wannabe filmmaker in Texarkana by the name of Charles Pierce. Mm-hmm. He he kind of had his hand in a little bit of everything. He was a graphic designer. He uh, did a little bit of TV stuff. He played a, a character by the name of uh, Mayor Chuckles in Shreveport on local television. He had an ad agency, and he was doing some commercials. Dang, he's a busy man. Yeah. So he, he kind of dabbled in a little bit of everything. Now, he wanted to do a movie, almost more of a documentary. That's how this thing started out. But he wanted to do something local. And he thought, man, 
There's this monster sightings right up the road. This would probably make a pretty good documentary. So that's how it all started out. It turns out it's a lot harder to make a movie back in the early 70s than what it is today. Because now you can pretty much take your iPhone and make some type of movie and edit it with some kind of software on your laptop. And they couldn't do that back then. You had to have this big reel-to-reel. You had all this extra editing. And it it just wasn't that easy. So what he did was he went down and he would just kind of talk to some locals and find out what was going on. And some people would tell him the stories and other people were like, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with the movie. You know, I don't want to, you know, I'll, I'll talk about it, you know, maybe to the newspaper, but I don't want to be involved with a movie and, and have myself broadcast everywhere where I look like an idiot. Oh. So, yeah, that would be the reason for that. The movie cost $125,000 to make. Mm-hmm. He borrowed $100,000 from a man in Texarkana in 1971. He shot this thing with a 35-millimeter camera. He couldn't afford actors, so what he would do is go up like to the local gas station, and he would just wait, and then people would come in, and he'd be like, she'd make a good Cindy Lou, or he'd make a good Bobby, <laughs> and that's how they did it. And then he would just go up to him and say, hey, you want to be in a movie? And they'd be like, well, sure, we'll be in a movie. And that's how they got it. So there were no actors. Everybody was from the town. Oh, that's pretty for cool, For the most though. part. And, you know, you know, keep in mind, this guy was an unknown filmmaker. He had people that were locals in the movies. He would go to the gas station to find all these people. And he debuted it in Texarkana in 1972. He first took it to Hollywood, right? He couldn't get them to even. Yeah. They, they were like, Arkansas, what? Who, <laughs> who are you? Um, you're And you've got a Bigfoot movie? Yeah, I don't think we're interested. And. Uh. That was pretty much the end of it. And, of course, you got this guy that loaned him $100,000, calling him almost every single day. and be like, um, do you got some of my money back yet? So this guy's struggling now because he really thought that this would be something he could sell to Hollywood. It would be a cool story. So he's like, I got to do something to try to get this money back. So he came back and rented a theater. Okay? This, this thing was 100% do-it-yourself. He had to pay the projectionist. He had to pay the ushers, the people in the concessions. This thing wasn't even suitable. He had to get fire hoses just to clean the floor. They had because it had so much stickiness and stuff to the floor. He had to use you know that. So he gets this thing all set up, and you know, keep in mind at this time, locally, you had like Little Rock. Uh, radio stations offering a $10,000 bounty for the Falk Monster. So could you imagine you're listening to the radio, whatever, wherever you're at now, and, and let's say you're over in England and they're offering, you know, a $10,000 bounty for the Loch Ness Monster. Mm-hmm. Actually, that would be Scotland, so I'm showing my ignorance on geography. <laughs> but you could imagine how funny that would sound. Yeah. So this thing was pretty hyped up. So the fact that the legend had gotten so big... Locally, when he did decide to show this, he had people lined up all the way around the block. They were bringing sack lunches because sometimes they would have to wait two or three showings just to be able to get in there to get a seat. Dang. So this thing was a pretty big hit. And he had uh, another copy. It wasn't as good as, as the one that he was showing, but he did have another copy of the film. And he decided to do the same thing up in Shreveport. And he had the exact same results. People lined up, just waiting, two or three, you know. And he was showing this thing 
around the clock, pretty much. I wonder how long the movie was. Well, it's an hour and hour and forty minutes. Oh, really? Yeah, roughly. Um, well, it's a, it's a very cheesy type movie by yeah. today's standards. Well, yeah. But the thing about the movie is, almost anybody who's into cryptozoology, and for those of you unfamiliar with that term, cryptozoologists are people who study creatures that are basically unknown. Uh, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, the Skunk Ape, the Mothman, Mothman. all those things that that could be some type of creature that's um, just not been proven to exist. That's what cryptozoology is. What did you say? The Skunk what? The Skunk Ape. That's like a Sasquatch type thing in Florida. Oh. Yep. All these things. That's the funny thing about it. All these creatures, the Bigfoot types, they all had their names. Mm-hmm. You know, they all, like the skunk ape, or you had, you know, this one or that one. They all had names. But nobody was as famous internationally as the Falk Monster. Mm-hmm. That was, that was everybody knew what the Falk Monster was. Mm-hmm. So even though there was tons of these creatures around, supposedly, this was the one that was internationally famous. And because of that, and because of the, the luck he was having, and was, keep in mind, this was a rated G movie. So you had kids and everybody lining up to see this thing. But because of this, Hollywood eventually came knocking, and uh, they were like, hey, uh, you remember us? And he'd be like, um, no, I don't think I remember you guys. <laughs> and they were like, uh, we want to offer you some big money. And, and I would have been like, in your face. <laughs> so a group called uh, uh, Halco International offered him $1 million for, for 50% interest. And, you know... This guy, he he was having success, but he's smart enough to know that mm-hmm. if it was going to reach any real level of, of mm-hmm. status, he couldn't do it just by showing it these two little local theaters. So he took the money, uh, 50% interest. And, you know, this is a guy that had never directed a movie before, had no famous people in it, all just local people, cost 125000 to make, and now he's got a million dollars, and he's still got 50% mm-hmm. going forward. So that's pretty pretty impressive when you think about it. And, you know, it's funny because, like I said, that movie ended up being what inspired a lot of so many, you know, cryptozoologists out there. There's a lot of people now that, you know, 30 years later that they're out there studying everything from, from Bigfoot-type creatures, the abominable snowman, they've got the mothman, and it's all because of this movie. They Isn't were, that amazing? I mean, it's just... This thing was such a huge phenomenon. Phenomenon. That that even after um, all this, because people were like, if you talk to people like about the Falk Monster or the legend of uh, Boggy Creek. Boggy Creek. Sorry, honey. You're killing me. I'm sorry. But if you talk to people about it, they're like, oh, yeah, that was that thing back in the 70s. But that's Mm -hmm. not 100% true. Um, You know, things have happened since then. Yeah. But it was never at its biggest height than what it was back in the 70s mm-hmm. after this movie came out and keep in mind this was during the time when drive-ins were really big so this movie even though it came out in like 72 i mean they were still showing it at like 75 76 so so you know it was a good movie to go to the drive-in and see if you were taking a date you know she'd kind of be scared kind of cling to you and that's what you kind of wanted mm-hmm. at drive-ins but this big thing became such a huge phenomenon that cardinals of people would come to town and they would just pitch tents anywhere trying to trying to get a glimpse of the Falk monster. People would be asleep in their house and wake up the next morning and find people with tents on their lawn. Oh my gosh. 
And I would you know, not do that. I'd be so scared. Some of the locals made really good money because they would have like the diner would have like three told sandwiches or whatever. <laughs> you know, they they would have you know, falc banana splits, whatever the case. Yeah, I mean, they would have something that would try to draw the attention. Yeah, and, and some of the little little places in town, they would have little novelties and stuff mm-hmm. that they had made up to sell. But then there was other people who didn't like all the traffic and stuff coming mm-hmm. to town. I mean, if, you can imagine if you were like a bean farmer and your crop was how you make a living, and you got people trampling through it all the oh, time. Oh yeah, that'd be you terrible. You can imagine that could be you know devastating. Mm-hmm. And. uh it's like I said, so most people think this just happened in the 70s, but there have been some instances since then. I thought we'd talk about a few of them. 1981, a man in Jonesville was fishing. It was starting to get kind of dark. He hadn't had much luck, and he decided, hey, you know, I think I'll, you know, give it a, a few more minutes. And about that time, he kind of hears something kind of rustling back in the, the trees, but he doesn't see anything. Well, his leg kind of had a, a dog leg, you know, where it hooked one way. And uh, went around the trees. And he kind of went over that way. And whatever it is that he heard, he heard it kind of just stop when he got close. And then a few seconds later, he could hear it basically take off running through the through the trees. So he got scared. He goes back to the house. And uh, that's where his dad was. And he tells his dad what he said. He said, man, I, I think I just saw the Falk monster. Well, his dad is a deacon of the church. He's... Uh, you know, a well-known photographer in the area. It's got all these awesome pictures from, you know, all through uh, his time growing up and, and of, of the area in general. And he's somebody, like I said, a pillar of the community that they talked to the newspaper about it. And, and he was convinced that his son saw something. He wouldn't have been that scared. Mm-hmm. And he felt like that he had seen stuff, too, but wasn't 100 percent sure. But his son seeing it kind of confirmed that. They probably had both seen it. He just didn't, yeah, wouldn't, you know, didn't have that confirmation. Now, in 1992, something strange happened. You had a truck driver coming down the the road, going one direction, and a carload of people. There was five people in his car coming the other direction. They both uh, vehicles saw something crossing the road that fit the description: a six six and a half, seven foot tall covered with fur, walking like a man that just crossed the road. Right in front of both right of in, them. Right in front of both of them. Wow. Also in 1992, in roughly the same area, five different people in three different cars all saw something crossing the road there at the same time. Mm-hmm. 1997, there was another report similar. Several more sightings in the 2000s. Uh, in, in 2000, a coon hunter around the Sulphur River claims that he saw it 2004 carter lake somebody saw one down there in 2010 uh there were some people that saw it uh, near falk and i think what what you're finding is that you know these these woods and stuff aren't quite as dense they're tearing things down to build houses and stuff so it would make sense that if there are creatures under that they probably would be pushed further and further out so it's not you know right there in that falk uh, Jonesville area, so they are kind of spreading out a little more as far as the sightings. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they're just lonely. Well, it could very well be. I mean, can you imagine just walking around in the woods, da, 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 just walking around in the woods, and maybe they just want to make some friends? Well, maybe they should just start their own website, and it'd be like a dating site or something. It'd they be, could. You know, you know, Bigfoot.com or Bigfootmatch.com or something. Yeah, that why not? Cool. There's every other kind of damn website lonely, out there for that. LonelyBigfoot.com. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, the the funny thing about it is if these sightings have been seen for so many years, 
if if there are something out there being seen, there's got to be a group of them. Yeah. There's, there's no way the same the same there's Bigfoot no creature is 65 years old running around with a damn cane. Yeah. You know, crossing <laughs> the road. Or, could you imagine you see a book, Bigfoot and they're in one of those little, uh, you know, those little scooter things like you got at Walmart? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, of course there has to be more than one. I mean, and like, like I said, he's probably just lonely. I mean, shoot. I like the idea of an old Bigfoot and yeah. some kids walking around. Get off my lawn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that would be funny. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, that basically, in a nutshell, is the story of the legend of Boggy Creek. Well, that's pretty cool. I don't think Bigfoot's probably all that bad of a person. Well, the, like I said, the only instance we had was the one yeah. where the guy says, and supposedly he changed his story. Like, Initially, it was, hey, he threw me down, and then it changed it to something else Mm -hmm. down the road. So, you know, but something happened to him because he was in shock. Yeah. He did have some bruises and stuff like that. But, you know, who's to say that he just didn't see something and got so scared that Mm -hmm. he tried to run and fell and thought something was going to get him? And there you go. Well, I mean, if he's going to go there, he needs to make it a pretty good, interesting story. Maybe the Bigfoot was just trying to pick him up and help him through the door. Maybe he he just wanted a flipping hug. He saw him slip and fall, and he wanted to go help him up. Help! I've fallen, (laughs) and I can't get up. (laughs) I don't know what accent that was. I don't know either. It's all I can muster. But that pretty much is the story of uh, the legend of Bogey Creek. So so the next time you see a Sasquatch, just give him a old hug. That's probably all he wants anyway. I'm sure that's what it is. Just like Ben the Bear. That's all he wanted was a big hug. Just a big hug. Um, I wanted to say thank you to, uh, we had some t-shirt sales this week, and uh, I didn't write the names down, but if you want to buy t-shirts or if you want to join our Patreon and, and uh and get the bonus episodes, just go to our website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com, and you can buy T-shirts there, or you can join the the Patreon, or if you just want to make a one-time donation, you can do that. So thank you very much for that. Thank you guys for that. We love your support. And now what I want to do is go ahead and bring up uh, the interview with Mike Brown, because this was actually pretty fun. And I think what you're going to find is, unlike some of the interviews we've done, we actually get Mike to tell us some stories. And that's what he's actually doing here. Even though he's the podcast host and we ask him about the podcast, he also dives into some of the stories on some of my favorite episodes. And I think once you hear him talk about some of this, you're going to be ready to just instantly go subscribe to this. And uh, I I think you should because I know I would. Mm -hmm. It it literally is one of my my favorite ones. And I thank Chelsea for turning me on to it because I probably wouldn't have known about it. And, And he's been out there actually longer than we have. So it just goes to show when people ask us about, hey, why do you have these you know shows on? Because we've had people literally say, why did you have the girls from And That's Why We Drink or the guys from uh, uh, Not Alone or Don't Break the Oath? It's because there are so many podcasts out there, it's easy for the good ones to get lost in the shuffle. And until somebody hears one of these podcasts and tells you about it, word of mouth is the only way that these things are going to grow. And, you know, when I hear one that I really like, I try to help put the word out there. And then there's a lot of other podcasters that do the same. So that's what it's all about is just trying to help each other grow. And, and, and you know, we all we're not competition to each other. We you know, how many people out there of you guys are listening to 15 other podcasts? I mean, I know I do. Mm-hmm. I don't look at anybody as competition. I just look at it as all being in the same boat. And we're all we're all providing entertainment. And the more the merrier. Heck, yeah. So without further ado, um Please welcome to the show, Mike Brown. 
All right, I am joined by a special guest on the show, Mr. Mike Brown from Pleasing Terrors. Mike, thanks for coming on board. Thank you for having me. I, I got to say, Mike, you know, I've got a, a mutual listener uh, by the name of Chelsea Anaya out in uh, California. And a couple of weeks ago, she sent me a message. I forgot what we were even talking about, but uh, she said, hey, you should check out Pleasing Terrors. And up to this point, oddly enough, I hadn't heard of the show, but there's so many podcasts out there, it's hard to hear of all of them. And uh, I downloaded the first issue, and I'm going to tell you, brother, I have been hooked ever since. I've been binge listened to every episode in about a week and a half time. So you have a marvelous show, and I wanted to commend you on that. Well, thank you very much. You know, I, I think there's three types of shows really out there and it really doesn't matter what genre but you know there's the shows like mine and tracy where we just basically just sit around and talk about a subject you have the shows out there where it's pretty much a host and then they have a guest on and just interview the guest the whole show and then you have shows like yours uh, which i put in the same type of category with lore and and unexplained which are probably my two favorite shows and you know where you've got a brilliant brilliant storyteller uh and you know to write these things like you guys do and to be able to tell the story is a talent i wish i had because if I had that kind of ability, that's the kind of show I would do. But, you know, it's a unique talent to do things the way you guys do. And, and uh, you know, that's what makes the show. So I, I wanted to say, first and foremost, I'm a huge fan. And to put you in the same category for me, to put you in there with, with uh, Lore and, and Unexplained is, is couldn't be the, any higher praise. I think you guys, you three guys, are the best storytellers in the podcast uh, world. So um, just wanted to say that coming right out of the gate. Well, thank you very much. That's very that's some very flattering company to uh to be a part of uh I mean, that's pretty high praise, so uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Mike, tell me a little bit about the show itself. If, if somebody out there hasn't listened to the show and you're wanting to give the best description of it, do that for me and give me a little background on how you actually got this show started. Well, the Pleasing Tears is uh, it's a mixture of true crime, uh, paranormal, ghost stories, um, usually whenever I can, also mixed in with folklore or legends or fairy tales. One of the things that I try to do with the show is I try to take different things that at first glance might not seem like they fit together and sort of tie them all together in one story. And, uh, you know, there's so many... One of the goals that I, I had uh, with this podcast was the fact that, you know, there's so many podcasts out there and we're all, regardless of genre, we're all sort of covering a lot of the same stories. And so um, I wanted to try to create a, a podcast where it really wouldn't matter what the topic was uh, that people would be tuning in because they would be interested in hearing what what my version of it was going to be. So, um, you know, there, for example, if, if I'm going to do an episode, if, if I were going to do an episode on, say, H.H. Holmes or, or something like that. Um, I, I, I just wanted to create a podcast where people would be interested in, in hearing what my take on it would be and not necessarily, you know, that, OK, this is just another podcast about H.H. Holmes. Um, and the reason I got into it, I've, I've been a, a tour guide giving ghost tours in Charleston for about 20 years in Charleston, South Carolina. So I, I've been telling ghost stories uh, for a living for 20 years. And I kind of reached a point and in, in really one of my inspirations for it was lore, was uh, listening to that. I used to listen to podcasts when I would be coming down to give my ghost tours in the evenings. And at some point, the idea just set in. It's like, wondered if, well, I wonder if I could do that. And uh, once the idea came up, I, it wouldn't go away. And um, and it just sort of happened to that. Well, and, and you know, you touched on an interesting thing, because one of the things I was actually going to bring up was the fact that of, of your storytelling, I do like how it is similar to lore uh, as far as as, 
you know, you start off with an intro and then the meat of the story comes in and then at the end, everything's tied together. But it's it's really cleverly done, which makes your storytelling stand out to me, which that's that's my biggest draw to the show. And you're right. I, I've heard several of your topics that were something I've heard before, but your take on it was completely different. Uh, and I'll go back to the the. Um, the dragon episode you did when you uh, touched on the the Jersey Devil. Your take on that was so completely different than anybody else's I've heard. It, it I had a complete interest in the story to where if you'd have told me ahead of time, hey, this is an, a, a show about the, the Jersey Devil, I probably wouldn't have been as excited about it. But your well, ver- your version, you know, was that's awesome. one of the one of the things that I it's sort of counterintuitive for podcasts is, you know, one of the things in podcasts with SEO and getting people to know, you know, to find your episode is you're supposed to sort of promote what it is you're talking about. And um, my preference is actually, I would prefer that somebody listening to my show, when they tune into an episode, have no idea what that episode is going to be about. Um, you know, that the, that the story just sort of get a chance to unfold as they listen to it. Um, because, you know, if you know ahead of time, uh, for example, that this is an episode about the Jersey Devil, is you know, if you listen do other podcasts about that. You can't help but sort of fill in the story you know, right out of the gate. And, um, I, ideally I, when someone listens to my show, I, I would prefer that they have no idea what an episode is about and just sort of get to experience it as it, as it unfolds. Well, that's, and, and you've probably hit a nail on the head that I'm sure most people thinking right now are probably listening and thinking, man, that is so correct. Why didn't we think of that? Cause I know that's what I'm thinking right now is that, you know, it's probably the better way to do it. Well, from a storytelling perspective, yes, maybe from a marketing perspective, perspective i don't know <laughs> but uh but yeah definitely from a storytelling perspective i i, I kind of want people to uh to come into it not knowing where it's gonna go i think one of the things mike that sets your, your show apart um and we kind of do this a little bit on our show is we we like to touch on the different avenues like like you said it's you know sometimes a little bit of true crime sometimes a little bit of this a little bit of paranormal um, and you do bounce around a little bit, and I think that keeps it interesting. And I had a couple of shows that were of special interest to me that I think listeners out there would absolutely love uh, once they hear it. Not that they're not going to love all the episodes, because I've, I've loved every one I've listened to. Uh, but some of them just really stood out to me. And I wanted to touch on your very last episode. Uh, and mm-hmm. what, I, what I like is you put disclaimers in the front. You, you mentioned in the beginning that this had some, you know, some violent and graphic nature stuff and uh, touchy subjects. Uh, but you were talking about the Wendigo. And that's always been a subject that fascinated me. And but I've never really delve into the topic. But the way that you presented the story and the facts that you did love that you're fact based, by the way. And the, it was an awesome story. Can you can you touch a little bit on what gave you the idea for that episode, or uh, or you know what what made your interest in that to do some of these shows? Well, that that was a different episode in terms of how I got the idea for it because that was actually a a request. There was there's another podcast which I'm a huge fan of called Bone Palace Ballet, which is a true crime podcast, and also that's one of my favorite podcast names ever. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But they, they had uh, – I was just talking to them over Twitter and they said, oh, do a Wendigo episode. And I I'd never thought about it before and I was like, OK, that sounds like a really interesting topic. And so I did. Uh, the surprising thing was how little there is out there on on the subject of Wendigos. There's, there, I really couldn't find a lot of, of information. I, uh, so I kind of had to dig deep to uh, to find some instances of, of historically speaking, of there being uh, Wendigo incidents. 
you know, cannibal incidents. Um, I was able to find some, but uh, it, it wasn't as, as huge of a topic as I'd expected it would be. But it's kind of funny on a coincidence uh, standpoint, because, you know, last week we did a show and one of the shows, uh, the, the topics we did was the missing persons result of, um, of Charles Tompkins in Georgia. And, you know, mm-hmm. he just disappeared and it was, you know, strange occurrence. But one of the, the I guess, theories out there was that it was possible it was a Wendigo. And we discussed on on the show that you know that was a theory and why that it made sense but at the same time it was in a completely different area than what the the wendigo talk was where it was, wendigo talk was up north where all of your stories took place uh that you mm-hmm. discussed where this was in georgia where it didn't really make sense but you know i hadn't thought about wendigo and i can't tell you how long it just happened to pop up in that story last week and and then you did a complete story so my interest was already peaked in it so I think that's part of the reason I enjoyed it so much. Well, yeah, and the Wendigo idea is so interesting because it's it's something that starts off as mythology. And then over time, the stories evolve into almost like a demonic possession kind of a story. And then as you get into modern times, it's a, this sort of psychological syndrome called Wendigo psychosis. But even now, this, the psychosis itself is almost legendary because there have been no known examples of it in, you know, in the 20th and 21st centuries. So there, there's no one living now that's ever been diagnosed, or within living memory, it's no one has ever been diagnosed with Wendigo psychosis. So even as a psychological ailment, you know, even in science, it sort of has this mythological, legendary quality to it, which was really interesting. Yeah, it, was, it was a really fun story. It's very disturbing <laughs> for anybody that hasn't very listened disturbing. to it. But it was a, yeah. but it was a, fun, a fun listen. Um and that's that's one of the reasons that I I do uh, on occasion put those disclaimers at the front is because I know that there are people that will listen with their kids and um, you know I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to you know the stories are supposed to be entertaining and they are dark uh, they can get very dark but uh, you know I wouldn't want anyone to actually get upset listening to it no I can definitely understand that. and I'm sure a lot of people appreciate that because then you know some of the some of the topics that we talk about just by the nature they are going to be graphic and if you're going to tell the story the way you need to tell it you know that's just part of it I mean you can't talk about Lizzie Borden without talking about you know she killed her family with an axe if that's you know right. who, who did it it's just part of the story Any, anybody who knows me knows I am a music freak you mix in a little bit of uh, the occult or uh, any type of magic with the music, then you've got a topic that I could talk on for days. So it's no secret uh, that my favorite episode that you've done so far is the uh, the Charles Manson episode. And you've got a little bit of a story in there with Trent Reznor. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yes. And, you know, that's interesting enough. That's a story that came to me on a ghost tour. I had a, a musician come on my ghost tour and he told me the story of the door. And I was just completely fascinated by this really creepy story about this door. And uh, he mentioned how uh, he had been working in New Orleans a few years ago. And Trent Reznor at the time had a studio in New Orleans. And at the door of his studio was the door from the Sharon Tate house uh, in the the Charles Manson murders. It was it, it's a famous sort of almost iconic door because it, it had the word pig written in blood on the front of it. And um, it, it turns out that back in the 1990s, Trent Reznor had uh, resided at the Sharon Tate house on Cielo Drive in the in the Hollywood Hills. And um, of course, that was the house where the infamous murders, the Charles, one portion of the Charles Manson murders took place. And um, the uh, while he lived there, I, I went back and uh, 
was able to find some instances of him talking about uh, some of the weird things that happened when he lived there. You know, seeing uh, these people on the the security cameras that would just there would be someone on the property that he could see on the camera and then they would just disappear. Being able to to feel the presence in the house. And how he himself was just terrified at times, being alone at night inside that house. And uh, this just sort of, of feeling, this aura that hung over the property. And of course, you know, that was the, the place where, I, I don't recall the, the date off the top of my head, but it, that was the place where the members of Charles Manson's cult, I guess you would call it, uh, murdered Sharon Tate and several other people. And uh, that same room where the murders took place is was being used by Trent Reznor as a studio, as a music studio. And after he left, because he was just renting the property, and I think it was in 1994 that the owners decided they were going to tear that house down. And so Reznor took the front door with him when he moved to New Orleans. And uh, it was uh, he kept made it the front door of his studio. And it was later sold, I think. But uh, yeah, I was just sort of fascinated by that story of the door. And of course, that in addition to that, that property itself, there's a house that's literally just steps away uh, down Cielo Drive, which is been the source of this huge amount of paranormal activity. Uh, in fact, the the owner made a movie about all of the things that were happening in his house. And that whole area, interestingly enough, Cielo Drive, has been classified by the U.S. Geological Service as this sort of geomagnetic anomaly. And it is uh, it has been speculated by some paranormal experts that, that there's sort of a, a bottling effect happening there, which might explain why the spirits that people have encountered, not only on the what was the, the Tate property, but also the surrounding houses are sort of trapped on that location. And uh, it's supposed to be a very intense place, so much so that people going there will sometimes become ill just, just being around that area. I have to say that that's one of the few places where I would have some serious uh, reservations about going there. And certainly about spending the night there. Well, that, that's a perfect segue into my next question because one of my other favorite episodes that you've done talks a little bit about you actually spending the night uh, in the prison, I believe, right there in, in uh, Charleston. Am, am I correct on that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that situation because I know you said you definitely had some concerns there that you hadn't experienced before, and I thought it was a fascinating listen to how you described the, everything that went on and your feelings it really made me feel like I was there with you. So tell the audience a little bit about uh, what you encountered there and, and how that took place to start with. Well, the, in, in Charleston, South Carolina, there is a really creepy building. Uh, it looks like a haunted castle. It sits right in downtown Charleston. It's surrounded by houses, strangely enough, but it's called the Old City Jail. And it dates back to 1802. It's this big gothic creepy looking building and it has a horrific history they estimate that 10,000 people have died within this building it it has been a a place where just all sorts of torture and horrible horrible things have happened over a long period of time and uh and then one day they just shut it down because they built a new jail somewhere else and, and it just sat there empty for decades and it has been open uh there's a company called bulldog tours who uh who manages the property and gives a nighttime haunted jail tour there. And it's been visited by pretty much all of the, the big ghost hunting shows over the years. Uh, so staying there, you know, for a, a few hours at night was not a new thing, but something that no one had ever done was to stay there alone. And uh, that was, it was something that 
I guess at first seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> I have to admit that when we got down to the, the day, I was really nervous about it. But um, I didn't want to do like a ghost hunting thing because I really have no experience with that. Um, I wasn't there to necessarily try to prove that it's haunted or disprove that it's haunted. I just wanted to be alone inside the building and and write about what it was, what was going on there, the history while I was inside the building. I wanted to do an episode where I would be writing the episode inside the haunted location, you know, and sort of experiencing it. And with no filters, with, with uh, it's amazing the difference. Even if, even if I'd had one more person there with me, that would have been so much more comforting than, than just being there all by myself. Um, and, I, and so it was, it, was, it was a scary experience. And there were a lot of things that started happening that night, in particular between uh, three and four in the morning, which of course is traditionally considered to be the devil's hour. But uh, for, during that hour, there was just all sorts of activity inside the building. You could hear voices. I could hear voices coming from upstairs. You could hear noises that sounded like the doors of the cells opening and closing. Um, there were a couple times where I thought I could see things down hallways when I looked. It was just a, a very intense time period, made worse by the fact that I had done a lot of research. So I, I knew everything or at least a lot of what had happened there. You know, I could point to a location at the bottom of a staircase and know that a 15-year-old boy had been murdered on that spot during the Civil War or that that particular room was used to torture people. And so the combination of being there alone, knowing the history and uh, and just having all kinds of weird stuff happening while I was there was a really uh, sort of frightening combination. That's a really cool situation. I mean, I, you know, I've spent a night in Waverly Hills. Uh, it's been years ago. And I know oh, I want to do that so bad. Uh, and but you know I was with a group of people, so that's a whole lot different than than the situation. I, I don't think I could have done that by myself. But uh, no, I mean that's like I said. I, I I think it's a cool situation. Anytime you can just step up to the plate and say, "Hey, we know there's just a bunch of um, uh, activity in here, and it's a kind of a creepy place," but I'm going to go ahead and and step up and and spend a night there. And you know, I I think it's a cool situation. I, I'd love to be able to do something like that, but I, I don't have the I don't have the guts to do it. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> well. I I don't know that I do either. You know, it just sort of, <laughs> it kind of happened. And uh, and by the time it, it was sort of on its way, it was too late to change my mind. Yeah, I guess like but, when, uh, when you jump out of a plane parachute and once you jump, it's too late. <laughs> Yes, I was just gonna say but that that was it was quite an experience. Yeah, like I said, I you know there's I've I've had a couple of experiences, but nothing you know. We talked about the the Sharon Tate uh, area. Would you know? I would love to go out there just to be able to see if I feel anything. I know that's the exact opposite of what I'm just saying, but I mean I I, I love going you know any place that there's supposed to be activity just to kind of see but i'm kind of chicken i'd rather go with people you know we went to bobby Mackey's uh on a on a private tour one time and and we had another couple with us uh but then the next time we went back it was actually during their open hour so i mean there was literally probably 600 people in there but it was cool to be able to be in there but you know when you got 600 people surrounding you don't really have to worry about being scared right mike i, I definitely appreciate the fact that you came on the show today i'm excited about your future episodes uh tell everybody how they can find your podcast out there well pleasing terrors is available Available wherever you would normally go to listen to podcasts on iTunes or if you're not an Apple person on uh, a whole bunch of other different uh, podcast sites. And you can also find me on Facebook and Twitter at Pleasing 
cares. And um, on Instagram as well, I, I mostly just on Instagram post uh, photos, nighttime photos of uh, Charleston. But uh, I'm always pretty active on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, perfectly happy to talk to anyone that wants to send me a message or has any questions. You do post some pretty cool pictures, by the way, some some uh, old old uh, buildings and stuff like that. So they, they're, they're pretty enjoyable. I like looking at that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, it's such a Charles, downtown Charleston, the historic district night is, is one of my favorite places. And uh, I, I just get, enjoy getting the chance to share little glimpses of it since I get to enjoy it every night. But like I said, you know, your podcast has quickly become one of my one of my favorites. I can't wait for the new episodes. I'm urging everybody out there, if you haven't already listened uh, to Pleasing Terrors, download it. You'll be glad you did. You'll be uh, just like me. You'll be binging through every episode and then waiting for them to put out more and uh you put this out this is bi-weekly correct mike well more or less i try to get out at least to a month um it, it doesn't I've, I've not been very good at keeping to a strict schedule right. but uh, i do try to put out two episodes a month awesome guys thank you so much for for uh listening and and we appreciate you allowing us to have great guests like uh, mike on if uh if you like what you heard that's just a sampling of what the show is uh, his show is so much more than what he was able to touch on today, but I think it did give a good representation of, of what the the show is. If you found those stories interesting, you'll love the podcast. Go download it, uh, leave him a good review, and uh, help him grow this thing even bigger than it already is. Mike, thanks for coming on, brother. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, it ain't no problem. I'll look you up when we get to South Carolina because I'm definitely coming down there from some ghost tours. Oh, that'd be great. Thank you, sir. All right, everybody. Now, tell me Mike is not a fun guy. How do you not want to go listen to that show? Yeah, he was great. He's got some really cool stories. Now, I wanted to uh, mention something I probably should have mentioned earlier. Originally this week, we were supposed to have an interview with Katie Stewart, and she couldn't wrap up the filming that she was doing on time to be able to do the interview, but I'm actually going to have that for next week's show. So I think you guys will really like what she's got to say, and we'll talk about uh, some of the upcoming movies she's going to be in. And uh, she was in Overtime, which... uh, was a really good movie. If, you, if you're into the horror genre, look that up. It's available almost anywhere. Uh, but that was a really good movie. But she's been in a bunch of stuff, and she's got a bunch of cool stuff coming. The Wicked One has just been released. on. Uh, you can get that on Amazon, and that's uh, probably her best movie to date, and then uh, more coming. So looking forward to talking to Katie next week. Yep. And that's really all we got as far as uh, this week's show. A little bit shorter than, than, than usual, but... Uh, we still wrapped up over an hour. It's not too bad compared to the old 20-minute days. <laughs> I almost made it through the whole show without throwing up in my mouth right at the end. Oh, my God. I, like, how, I, like I look how, forward to it like every week Yeah, now. I like how that's a theme. And it's like, you know, the over and under. Is he going to do it before the interview or after the interview? <laughs> that's so great. <laughs> anyway, we love you guys. We'll, yeah, we love you guys. We'll see you next week. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. And you knew where you were then. Girls were girls and men were men. Mr. Wee.